0: Well, you know, there's an alternative to that, which is for women to build enough power that it doesn't matter what men think.
1: Hi, I'm Sarah Casconi, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. If you were familiar with the artist... Judy Chicago, chances are you associate her with one piece, her magnum opus, The Dinner Party, an epic work of installation art featuring elaborate place settings for 39 famous women, both mythical and historical, at a triangular banquet table. The feminist masterpiece took nearly six years and a veritable army of some 400 volunteers to complete. It became an international sensation attracting 16 million visitors on a 10-year tour of the globe, largely organized by Chicago and her team in the absence of institutional support from the art world. But the artwork, now on permanent view at the Brooklyn Museum's Elizabeth A. Sackler Center for Feminist Art, is conspicuously absent from the 82-year-old's first-ever retrospective, which opened in August after over a year's delay due to the pandemic at the de Young Museum in San Francisco. The show is something of a homecoming for Chicago, who debuted the dinner party in the city at SF MoMA in 1979. But she's pleased that the exhibition, which does include preparatory dinner party works, is finally putting the spotlight on the rest of her career. Judy Chicago, a retrospective, curated by Claudia Schmuckley, Presents some 130 artworks that seemingly encompass every medium, from paintings and drawings to tapestries and ceramics, and even photographs of her ephemeral woman and smoke firework performance art series. Amid a busy fall that has seen Chicago repeatedly crisscross the country, traveling to both coasts from her home in the tiny town of Berlin, New Mexico, the art angle was lucky enough to pin her down during a visit to New York for a rare pandemic era in-person interview. Hi Judy, welcome to The Art Angle. It's such a pleasure to be here with you in New York. Hi Sarah, nice to see you as always. Thank you and congratulations on the exhibition. I I was able to go see it and it's really just a tour de force and I hope a lot of people get to San Francisco. I wanted to start with the beginning of the show which is organized in reverse chronological order, starting with your most recent work, which is the opposite of most retrospectives. And it begins rather ominously with a work that appears to be a death mask. You were forced to deal with death at a very early age. Your father died when you were just 13, and 10 years later, you became a widow at 23. And those are just two of the most prominent instances of loss you encountered before that time? How did that affect you as a young person? And now having reached old age, so to speak, how has your relationship to mortality evolved? And can you describe that work at the beginning of the show? The first work you encounter
0: is the mortality relief. In 2003, I started working in glass, and I did first a series of hands, and then I cast heads, including my own. I got kind of sidetracked on the head project by one particular head that I got very, very interested in. But then I went back to them. And by then I had integrated bronze into my work with glass, which is very challenging because bronze and glass shrink at different rates when they are in the kiln. I can't remember when I decided to take the head I had cast of myself and turn it into a relief. I have a really good bronze fabricator in Santa Fe, and so I went to him with that problem about how to do it. I knew I wanted to do a piece that kind of harkened back to mortuary reliefs. Because by then I was working on the end, the meditation on death and extinction, which I actually started in 2012. It took six years, almost seven years. It was very, very difficult, technically and also, of course, personally. When I was writing The Flowering, it gave me an opportunity to think a lot about my life and across my career. And I realized that you're absolutely right, of course, that grief, I would say, shaped my life and the awareness of mortality. I can still remember when I lived in New York when I was a young woman for a year. And, you know, it was the 60s. I lived in the East Village, which had cockroach-infested apartments. I can still remember laying on the bed, which was a mattress on the floor, and listening at night to cockroaches dropping and hoping they didn't drop on me but anyway there were a lot of aspiring artists musicians dancers living in the east village then and you know we all used to sit around and smoke dope although I didn't do it so much because I of course had a disciplined work schedule even then but still I remember sitting there you know everybody was talking about what they wanted to do or what they were going to do and a lot of them were saying, well, I want to be a writer, but, you know, I have lots of time. You know, I would think to myself, how do you know that? My first husband died when he was 27. I mean, do you have a prescription from God saying you are guaranteed to live 80 years or 90 years? So the The fact of my realization about my mortality, I think, contributed to the urgency with which I worked. And Diane Gellin, the dinner party administrator, can talk about during those years when we were working on the dinner party, every time I'd make a trip or go anywhere, I'd say to her, now, Diane, if I don't come back, you have to promise to finish this and get
1: this done and blah, blah.
0: Because I never thought
1: I'd come back. Wow. You alluded to the works in the end, uh, which are works on glass. Could you talk a little bit about those works and what they are about? Well, first, let me talk about
0: why the exhibition is structured the way it is. Okay. Claudia and I had a lot of conversations about one of my concerns. You know, for a long time, the dinner party blocked out all the rest of my career. In fact, I used to go around saying, I wonder if I'll live long enough to see the body of my work come out from behind the shadow of the dinner party. And with Pacific Standard Time, the Getty Initiative in 2011 and 2012, my early work began to be visible. And actually, for the first time, slowly began to sell. But that work is the most neutral in terms of subject matter, of all my work. And, of course, the dinner party overcame the complete opposition of the art world and is now permanently housed at the Brooklyn Museum. So, okay, so the art world, whether they liked it or not, has got to accept it as part of art history. More recently, the Birth Project has been making its way into the art discourse. But the rest of my work, there has been... A near total blackout of it. And I did not want the viewers to avoid what I've spent half my career on, which is much more difficult subject matter. So Salon 94 showed power play, you know, which is a examination of the construct of masculinity that I did in the 1980s before there was the idea of toxic masculinity. Although I knew about toxic masculinity, it's been very interesting to watch viewers stand in front of driving the world to destruction and go, Oh my God, that's exactly what we're doing. And I'm like, yeah, duh. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so Claudia came up with this idea of reversing the chronology. So I said to Tom Campbell, the director, I said, okay, so this is what I predict. People are going to come into the show and they're going to be made very uncomfortable with having to deal with their own mortality because, of course, the mortality section, which is on black glass, small. But On Black Glass raises all these questions that Susan Fisher Sterling, the director of the National Museum of Women in the Arts, which is the only venue that the end was shown in before the de Young. When she saw them, she said, Judy, these are the questions everybody asks themselves. How will I die? Their fear of pain, aging. Okay, so first, they're going to be really uncomfortable. And then they're going to have to look at what we're doing to other creatures on this planet and the scale of it. And then they're going to see some of the glass I've done, particularly in New York. It's like glass. That's not art. You know, even though ceramics has crossed over. Then there's the Holocaust project, even though in the Jewish community, A lot of people say that the Holocaust figures is the greatest philosophical challenge of the 20th century. You could go into most major museums and not even know what happened. Okay, then power play. Okay, we all know about toxic masculinity now, so that's what she was exploring. The birth project, which now looks a lot easier than it did when I first did it, when I was accused of degrading women because I showed them on their backs giving birth. Now, I have to say that was one of the stupidest comments. Oh, now I'm responsible for the entire history of OBGYN? Because it was the medical profession that put women on their backs to deliver, not me and my paintbrush. I think that's a fairly modern convention of how to give birth as well. It is, absolutely. Okay, so then the dinner party. Okay, so everybody knows the dinner party, that'll be familiar. And then they'll get to my early work, and if they're really art world people, they'll breathe a big sigh of relief. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought it was a fantastic way of getting what is basically an open subject matter adverse community to have to deal with some of the subjects I took on.
1: Throughout your career, you really have been making work about subjects that you haven't seen in the art historical discourse. And that's kind of what draws you to so much of your your subject. Absence.
0: Absolutely. Absence.
1: I wanted to talk about kind of what it means to you to have this retrospective right now. There's a famous quote from the Guerrilla Girls in 1988 that said, being a woman artist is, quote, knowing that your career might pick up after you're 80. And you turned 80 in 2019. And that was on the heels of a big survey show at the ICA Miami that opened during Art Basel, which, of course, is kind of the highlight of the American art calendar. And you were opening your Through the Flower space in your home in Berlin, New Mexico, and you had a big fireworks piece that went off, and you had the Judy Chicago portal uh, launching online with your archives. Turning 80 was a big year. We spoke at that time. It was a very busy, fruitful time for you that kind of marked like the culmination of a lot of different things. And so I wonder, what did you think of that statement by the Gorilla Girls when you first heard it? I thought it was funny.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um i mean a lot of people ask me about this you know and i have a different view of it yeah it's true that i've had a really long hard struggle but on the plus side i also had 5 decades of being able to work in my studio without thinking about the market like when i was working on the flowering i said to Donald, my husband... That's your new
1: autobiography,
0: yes, right? Yes, my new autobiography, my definitive autobiography, actually. I said to Donald, you know, I know this sounds like totally stupid, but I realized that when we started out working on the Holocaust Project, which ended up as an eight-year journey, neither of us said to each other, who's going to buy art on the subject of the Holocaust? I mean, it just never even crossed our mind, which tells you how far away I was from art as money. And in the dinner party days, there was this woman named Sylvia Sherwood. A lot of people used to come to the studio, and Diane Gellin used to show them around because I was always working. But she wanted to buy a plate, you know, a test plate because we had extras. And she says to me, "How much do you want for this plate?" And I said, you expect me to equate money and art?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Did you come up with a price? No,
0: I think Diane did.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, you, you kind of worked for many years outside of the art gallery system. You had shows, but you didn't always have a gallery representative. You didn't always have the support of collectors or curators or critics. And I know as a young girl, you really set out to become a famous artist and your goal was always to kind of make your mark on art history. And I wonder, was there a time when you thought that like that kind of recognition would never come? And on the flip side, was there kind of a turning point when you realized that everything was kind of falling into place despite all the challenges? It didn't just fall into place. That's
0: true. That's fair. We put it in place. I mean, Donald and I have worked a very long time to ensure that our work won't be erased. It didn't just happen by itself. And even when I was the most marginalized by the art system, I still had a big audience. But it was like I lived two lives. One was this big audience wherever I went. Like, I remember when I was invited to have a show in Taiwan at Han Art Gallery in 1997, and Donald and I went over there, and every place I went, like every public event, was mobbed. And we went out to dinner with this young American woman who worked at the gallery, and I was expressing my amazement, And she said, Judy, you're world famous. Maybe you should get out more because, you know, At that same time, the dinner party was facing an uncertain future. Donald and I had no money. We had come out of the Holocaust Project after eight years in debt. We were trying to—I used to call it Donald's folly, his insistence that we had to have a house of our own, a place of our own. He was, like, basically building the Berlin Hotel for us. And I had no gallery representation, no opportunities, sort of traditional opportunities— It was really confusing. Actually, my art life and my public life collided in Arkansas at Crystal Bridges. And I can't remember what year it was. Oh, I know. It must have been five years ago. Because Jeannie greenberg Rowaton had come to Berlin and had taken me into the gallery. And she decided to go to Crystal Bridges, because I was doing a talk there with Chad Alligood, the curator then. There were 750 people there. And there was a private reception with less than that, like <laughs> 20 or 30, because we went around. And people talked about how they had driven all day from Dallas. and. Jeannie was completely flabbergasted and apparently she came back to New York and she said Judy's a
1: rock star Judy's a rock star
0: (laughs) and it was the first time That the art world kind of woke up to my huge wider audience so you know It was really confusing
1: To get back to the exhibition, I wanted to talk about one of the things that really stood out to me in the show, which was the importance of craft, I'll say, which is not only your embrace of like so-called women's work, because you work with craft that both has the history of being embraced by women, but also you did auto body painting and you've worked with oil paint in the power paintings. But I also wanted to consider the technical mastery of each and every material and technique that you seem to turn your attention to. So I wanted to ask, how do you balance the role of craft with the subject matter and content in your work? And have you found at different points in your career that one or the other of those is taking kind of a back seat?
0: The thing about auto body school that was probably the most important other than learning to spray and believe it or not, learning how to tape, because taping is a really important aspect of spray painting. Um being able to tape a curve with a 16-inch piece of tape takes a lot of practice. And because I was raised as a typical girl, and particularly a Jewish girl, which means like, at least when I was being raised, you didn't do your own home repairs. You called the super, especially since we lived in an apartment. But of course, I was such a brazen young woman, you know, I went into the shop at ucla even though i didn't know the first thing about using power tools i almost lost a breast to a (laughs) saw but anyway when i went to auto body school i learned that making art was about making an object At least for me, because I've always been focused on painting and sculpture. And that really changed my life, actually. Changed my practice. I mean, not that I had much of a practice. I was just starting, you know, I mean, professionally. But the way I've approached different media is exactly the same way I approach different subjects. That is a process of discovery, a journey of discovery, and trying to select a particular technique that seems appropriate to that subject. So, when I was starting to work on the end, I felt, by then I'd been working in glass, but I felt like black glass was the right medium because it was both strong and fragile, like human life. And like our planet. But technically, painting on black glass requires three firings just to build up enough white to get the color to show. So that meant six firings or seven firings of each piece and extensive, grueling work. Also, I decided to work small because the subject matter is so difficult, I didn't want to terrify viewers, I wanted to try and help them look at difficult subject matter. But the technique has to mirror, the difficulty of the technique had to mirror the difficulty of the subject matter.
1: And you actually kind of developed your own unique technique to paint on this black glass. I understand it was kind of a porcelain technique that you transferred over?
0: Yeah, actually, all of my kiln-fired painting on glass, the paint does not come from the glass world. It comes from the China painting world. When I was studying China painting in preparation for the dinner party, I saw that a lot of the China painters painted on glass. But, you know, even this is becoming, the medium is becoming a challenge to find because, you know, China painting which, of course, has a long lineage in Europe, the courts, the royal place settings, Limoges, you know, the whole tradition of China painting, which, of course, goes back to China, was brought to America where it went into the hands of women and became what we would call a hobbyist craft. That's how come you you don't learn to China paint, you learn to paint a baby rose because these are usually untrained artists, so they need to have results. So they came up with a whole way of teaching where people who do not have a high level of skill can still get a satisfying result. Well, it was passed down from mother to daughter, and the younger generation of women is not that interested in China painting.
1: But even beyond China painting and painting on glass, there's just such a range in the show. Um, Just to give our listeners a sense, there's a a hand cast paper sculpture. There's needlepoint. There's embroidery. There's a monumental stained glass window called Rainbow Shabbat from 1992. And I mentioned there's the oil paint, which was a big departure for you. How have you successfully embraced so many different materials and what do you credit for your uncanny ability to translate your vision across those different mediums
0: i have no idea (laughs)
1: It's (laughs) it's like how is it that i who
0: neither sew nor stitch can design for needlework i can just see a technique and think Whoa, that would convey, like, there's a technique called smocking that was usually used for children's clothes where a piece of fabric is compressed into little pleats. And, you know, I was in the middle of the birth project, and I was listening to women talk about how their lives became constricted after the birth of their children. And I thought that is the perfect technique to convey the sense of constriction I'm listening to.
1: One thing I noticed that even though so many things about your work changed, there is one kind of recurring element that you'll kind of see throughout, which is your beautiful cursive penmanship. And it reminds me so much of my handwriting primer with Sister Eva in second grade and my Catholic school on Long Island. So I wanted to ask you, what are your memories of learning to write script? And why has that been such a through line throughout your career? And also, do you consider cursive to be another underappreciated craft that you might worry that is kind of dying out in the United States today?
0: Well, as you well know, they're fighting to bring cursive back because they have discovered that one of the things it does is it trains children in hand-eye and brain-hand coordination and not doing it, learning everything on the computer, actually impedes the development of the brain. There's a lot to say for the pre-digital world, including the personal nature of handwriting i don't actually remember learning cursive because it was just part of you know when you're six years old and you're going to first grade you just learn cursive it's like you learn phonetics they're trying to bring that back too it's clear that not all advances are advances and i tell this story in the flowering but i'll tell it again for listeners In the early 70s, I was lecturing a lot around the country about my work. And I was somewhere in Montana to 200 people, okay? This is in the 70s. And I was working on the great ladies, you know, my early efforts to create abstract portraits of the women in history that I was discovering. The first ones that I did had no handwriting, unlike the reincarnation triptych, portraits of Madame de Stael, George Sand, and Virginia Woolf. It was before them. It was the earlier ones with no writing, like Marie Antoinette and Queen Victoria. So I was showing these, and I was talking about my discoveries about women in history and then my attempt to represent them. And afterwards, I did something that now I would recommend to other artists. Ask your audience if they understand what you're trying to communicate. Because, you know, artists learn to talk in tongues. That is, to make art that could be about something, but you never know it if you look at it. Okay? Because it came as a revelation to me. I remember this guy stood up and he said, Judy, you know, what you're talking about in terms of your interests are just fascinating. But I wouldn't know it if I looked at the images. So, because I didn't know how to make the images fully express the content, I started writing, like, around the borders or in relation to the image. But, like, even there, like, in the reincarnation check, I set a visual problem for myself, which was to describe each woman in 40 words so that I would have an identical number of words and spaces around the paintings. So that's when I started. And then, you know, because I had written also because of Anna East Nin, who inspired me to write. You know, at a certain point in the 90s, when I told you my career was in the toilet anyway, I thought, I wonder if I could bring together my ability to write and my ability to paint. And so then I did some projects like Kitty City, which is a series of watercolors about dolls in my life with our cats. is done in terms of a book of hours and Song of Songs, The Prince, where there's a parallel analog image, text, and visual image. So at this point, using writing to help express what I have to say is just ingrained.
1: Well, it's interesting. It makes me think of something you mentioned earlier, which was that your earlier works were more neutral, and I guess handwriting helped you kind of express your intended meaning more clearly. So the show, it ends, as you said, kind of maybe with a moment of relief for people who are familiar with the art world. And in your autobiography, the new one, The Flowering, you acknowledge that to be taken seriously as an artist, you had to, quote, suppress anything in my work that would mark it as having been made by a woman. And you say you do not wish to repudiate this work, quote, because much of it was good within the confines of what was permissible. But did you have any concerns about that being the final kind of note, the final gallery to close the exhibition? Or No, because
0: I hope by that time viewers will see certain consistency across my career despite the different subject matter, different techniques. One of the people who wrote about it said something about how that would be a problem, except that there was a level of rigor in all of it and the color. And the building blocks of my career in my visual language reside in that early work. Like 10-part cylinders, which is probably the most neutral work I've ever done because it has no color. I deliberately got rid of the color. First, I was getting so much shit about my color. Oh, a horrible color, you know. But it allowed me, for example, to focus on form. But still, my gender kept creeping in in all these ways. So, like, my rearrangeable sculptures. Because I came to consciousness in my studio about a lot of this. Why was I making rearrangeable sculptures when my peers were all making fixed sculptures? Well, because I was of the generation that learned that when your male partner comes back from a trip or calls you up, Uh, You rearrange your schedule to suit his needs, right? And so I realized that so then I stopped doing it (laughs) But same thing in the car hoods, you know, these biomorphic forms which obviously come out of my gender And here's something interesting, you know As some people know, I did this huge project with Dior, which is represented in the Dior show at the Brooklyn Museum. I mean, it was just the greatest creative opportunity I've ever had in my life. And I was designing these banners, which ask a series of questions, and one of them was, would buildings resemble wombs? And I was working on the image, and I actually started with a uterus. I mean, anatomically, I actually got a medical book. And when I finished it, I took it all around to our staff and I said, look at this. It looks just like my early work. It was so funny. And I realized I had just come full circle back to those forms that came so naturally to me when I was a young, unencumbered woman, not trying to be taken seriously by the art world, just being myself.
1: That's amazing. I mean, it really speaks to how some things are just innate and some forms just come to you as an artist. I wanted to ask what kind of advice you might have for young artists who are struggling. They might feel pressured to make different kinds of work than they would otherwise choose for themselves kind of disguise their meanings in order to be successful if it's academically, critically, commercially. Do you think that the art world still kind of values neutrality? Do you think that that's something that's still an issue for young artists today?
0: Go look at all the art, particularly in the art fairs. I mean, I didn't really understand the pressure of the market. I really didn't because I worked so far outside of it for so long. And also, I wasn't in New York, which is very important. Because even though it's been transmitted all over the world via art schools, it's particularly strong in New York. And I don't give advice. What I try and do is share my experiences like I did in the flowering, and my conclusions, and my path. And you know, I've forged my own path. And I think every artist has to decide if they want to pursue money or meaning.
1: It's the big question of, uh, of our time. Your work has meant so much to so many women over the years. But even as you've garnered more mainstream appreciation, I can't help but notice at like, events like the talk at the gallery that you still attract an overwhelmingly female audience. So I wanted to ask, how important is it that men are exposed to feminist ideas and women's history, and how can we as feminists balance creating safe spaces to celebrate women and their accomplishments while also still opening the doors to men so that they come to appreciate the importance of equality and the importance of women's contributions?
0: Well, you know, there's an alternative to that, which is for women to build enough power that it doesn't matter what men think. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) There were no signs on the gallery saying no men allowed. So it's men's choice. It was very interesting. Jeannie had a dinner party after the event. And several men at the dinner party talked about what being involved with a feminist partner has meant for them in terms of being able to escape the constraints of the construct of masculinity those are the only men who are going to be interested in what we have to say. Men who want to be free.
1: Well, that's a wonderful note on which to end. Thank you so much, Judy, for coming on the Art Angle today. It's been a real pleasure. Well, you pestered me until I would, Sarah. You (laughs) wouldn't give up. You couldn't believe the email (laughs) chain. It goes on and on. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. Com. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.